Today I talked to Slinda Appleby, Director of Talent Attraction at Visa. Slinda and I have, we go way back and I uh, consider her a good friend. I uh, hope you can see that or, or, or hear that from the podcast episode. Um, Slinda and I spent a lot of time talking about talent attraction, um, the importance of, of attracting talent for an organization, what it means to an overall just the workforce dynamic as you're moving candidates through the application funnel. We talked about her time at some really big brands and, and things she's learned along the way and the the importance of really having a, a people first process that's at the end of the day in recruiting we're all in the people business i hope you enjoy Slenda Appleby, thank you for tuning into this episode of How We Interview Podcast. Today, we have my good friend, Slenda Appleby, who's the Director of Talent Attraction at Visa. Slenda and I have known each other for some time. We're going to dig into all things hiring and talent attraction. Slenda, thank you for joining. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Always great to see you and obviously a topic near and dear to my heart. Yeah, likewise. I would love it uh, if we could just start off with you going over your background. Like, how did you get into talent attraction? What was your journey? And 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 just what's that look like for you over the years? Yeah, absolutely. So I started off as a recruiter. As a honestly, we don't call it anymore, but I was a headhunter back in the day, executive staffing, primarily because I still wanted to bartend and have this little easy job Monday through Friday. But I fell in love with the art of matching. And, and obviously, it's a little different when you're in a staffing environment where you do have to find the true match for your clients. But shortly over time in 2008, I had twins and I realized I couldn't change and the economy was terrible. So I couldn't chase that 30% of salary commitment checks anymore. It just wasn't happening. I decided to join corporate America and didn't know what I was going to do because it didn't seem apples to apples, but I, I got really lucky and joined HP as a sourcer. I think I was sourcer number six. Didn't even know what sourcing was, but really loved the chase and the hunt and honestly really figured out I should have been an FBI agent because I can find anyone. HP was a great company and they gave me the opportunity to join projects like the Employer Brand Project and the EVP Project. And at that time, we were calling it digital media or social recruiting. And sure enough, I raised my hand, got promoted multiple times in that organization and really learned on the job. So I was able to pivot my career. And then shortly after that, Oracle recruited me and then Nike recruited me and then Visa recruited me. So I've been very lucky to work for some amazing companies usually as employee number one in their talent attraction space. And usually that means there's no playbook, no budget, no resources, and they're just hiring me to come in and figure out what they need to do to efforts to attract talent. And I feel that I really thrive in that ambiguity. And current day, I lead all of the global talent attraction strategies. So anything pre-apply in the candidate's world is my life uh, for across the globe. Obviously, I have peers in region, but for the most part, I own the global strategy. That's awesome. Looking over your career, and I, I we first met when you were at Nike, and we worked with people in your different roles. We, we know a lot of the same folks. But one of the consistent threads is like a spectator to your your journey is you're a builder. You really like to build things from the ground up. I, I'd love it if you could talk about what is your approach if you come in as employee number one in talent attraction? How do you look at like assessing need and then offering solutions? Yeah. So 
this is going to date me, but when we used to recruit back in the day, there was always this, I know people don't do it as much now, but like an intake session where you're really just listening at roadshow and letting people like a therapist tell you all of their pain points and problems. And I've been really successful in doing that for the first 90 days. I'm just a sponge. I'm there to listen that Deloitte consultative approach that companies pay thousands, millions of dollars for. I just listen to everybody's pain points, what they're doing. Well, usually they're not doing very much and can put that together in PowerPoint. I am a lover of PowerPoints. I need that in a shirt. Um, And I assess them and come back to them and say, hey, this is what you're doing. This is what you're not doing well. This is what your competitors are doing. Oftentimes, company thinks their competitors are different. And I like when I joined Nike, I thought Adidas and Puma and Reebok were their competitors, but they felt it was Apple and Facebook. And so sometimes it's a little education process, but all based on what you what I heard versus me coming in and saying, this is what I think you should do. It always sounds better when you use their words back. And I wish I could tell you that as soon as I provide the assessment, people are bought in as you've been in the attraction space for a long time. People still don't know what attraction means or recruitment marketing means. It's one of those sexy things you add, like butt warmers in your car <laughs> when you're buying a new Stay car. Butt warmers. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, I get so upset when cars don't have them. So it's like something you need but also an add-on and also one of those things that is so hard to demonstrate ROI off the gate that it also makes it a very uneasy purchase. It's like adding a pool to the back of your house when you're still building the foundation. That's an amazing analogy. You said it. I'm like, oh, God, that's it. I'm like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme. It's like, oh, yeah, that's it. I think that's really well said. Sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, you get it. Most people want it, right? You, who doesn't want a pool? Maybe in Oregon, the people don't want a pool in their backyard because of the rain, but it's still those two little months of, of warm weather, the pool buys itself. You need it. You want it. What's the thing you hear about? Now you go to a conference, there's days dedicated to the work we do, but it's still not activated really well outside of the Fortune 50. Even the 100s are still struggling into getting it right or building that foundation to, to launch pad it for all jobs. A lot of people may get one job family or one persona really well, but to really attract talent for all your roles is still something I don't see many companies doing well. Yeah, and it's challenging because I, I think nobody's really cracked the code on what talent attraction a talent attraction done poorly, what the net cost of that is. If you're attracting the wrong talent that you're hiring a percentage of, and then they're either disengaged, not performing, or they're attriting, that, that's like a seven or eight figure cost. Yeah. And But because it's a sunk cost and it's one of those quiet expenses, nobody really talks about that. Obviously, you and I are going to be probably the biggest proponents of talent attraction and the importance of that, not only in a talent acquisition organization, but organization as a whole. So I, I agree with you a thousand percent pivoting a bit. Market's strange now. You mentioned getting into recruiting in 08. I think this market's probably similar to that market in terms of what Mm -hmm. we're seeing in terms of like labor dynamics. I'd love to hear how you are, because talent attraction, when you've got a misbalance in openings and labor, is is different than talent attraction when it's really uh, a candidate-driven market. And we've seen that flip now. So it's interesting times, right? Because not only is the general talent market, a little shady for lack of better words, most of the people that are my brand advocates are also without work, 
And so the people that talent attraction relies on heavily are our recruiters, our recruiting professionals, our frontline workers. They're also in this little, even if they're gainfully employed, they're still feeling like, am I next, right? Just with the volatility of the marketplace. So what we've been doing a lot in efforts to stay ahead of it is really thinking about the foundation and how we can build things that are going to be ready in that two-year mark. Because it's gonna, it's always going to go back to being a candidate-driven market. It's just the moment we're in today. Of course, a candidate that's without work doesn't want to hear that, right? It's like the timing is is off, but no, like, that's not something you say to someone that's looking for work, right? But from a sensor of excellence or from a builder mode, this is the time where you fix your processes, where you get the tools that have been you've been wanting, right? Leveraging the finances to make your candidate journey better for when that time is right. We are in a moment of lower um, numbers of hiring. I feel like they never really recovered from COVID or pre-COVID to pre-COVID numbers. I have yet to see that. I know some companies are a little different, but what I can say is that we didn't lay people off through COVID or after. So that also puts us in a different predicament where we've been growing, but at a more sustainable pace than our Fortune 100 partners at the at the tech side of the house or, or heavier in tech than us. Yeah, and then typically financial services, which does not necessarily find themselves in the same bucket as tech. I mean, I'm, I, we're seeing really large layoff numbers from some of the largest financial services providers, which is just something you would never see. And I I can't decide if that's more a matter of the, the market we're in or if that's more a ma- matter of people are reorganizing to get ready for this next kind of growth mm-hmm. cycle. If I knew the answer to that, I would not need to, to work a whole lot harder, but... <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. I think Visa doesn't sit in a traditional financial services since we're the technology that powers the payments and we enable those payment transactions versus being the bank or the person or the financial entity that provides the the resources. I think it's a little bit of both. I think people overhired, right? When people went remote, when companies went remote, there was an ability to overhire due to the lack of spending or the tax credits and so forth. And then there's a little bit of preparing for what's next. There's a lot of talk of is AI taking people's jobs? What does that mean? And I'm seeing a lot of resources shift to new AI departments or new general um, AI conversations. So I some places may not be hiring the same traditional jobs, but they're creating new jobs. But it, those things you really can't see because they're just happening so in the background. You've worked for some massive brands, right? Some of the biggest, brightest brands. Say God, say that fast three times. Biggest bright <laughs> brands out there. I would love to hear your thoughts on some things you've seen in terms of recruitment processes, like some best practices that you're like, look, if if I could start a company from scratch and I knew for a fact we'd be a Fortune 100 company in 10 years, these are some processes that I would make part of my day one. I will say, even though the brands have been big and I do feel very lucky that they've shaped my career, most of the companies I've joined have been in some sort of transformation where they're either doing a technology change or a process change. And they may not have been doing it when they hired me, but at some point in my tenure, the transformation was happening. But I do join a lot of calls and proudly say, like, Nike, we did this, and maybe we did that. And I will say what 
I loved about my time at Nike, it was very people-centric, always people-centric. And it might be something from an Oregonian perspective. I think it's just the quality of the roots of the people here, where they hire from their backyard and people are neighbors, and they brought that to their process. And I know a lot of companies talk about that, but very few execute on that. And what I mean is Nike held things like the employee referral program was really second to none in how they treated people, how they got back to people, how they processed. And I don't even remember the financial compensation from it, to be fair, right? Where, oh God, I hope this is not pointing fingers, but at Oracle, it was very much about the money that the bonus that you got and less about the connection and why we're bringing in your friend or your family or your colleague. They were uh, also people first in the way that they designed the candidate experience. There were so many conversations I was a part of during their digital transformation, where it was always about giving the candidate something back, like a thank you. Hey, can we give the candidate 10% off for applying? Or it was always centering the candidate. And I think it's because they really understood the candidate is and always will be a consumer Mm -hmm. where it's easy to see because they're in that sports consumer space. But I believe that about Visa, right? I believe that about Oracle, right? As they, yes, they may have been HR technology, but everybody has an HR department. If you can start treating your candidates like consumers across every step of the way and realize that some, not everybody can get hired, but you treat them like people and you treat them like people that are buying your goods and services, your your processes will always be in a better in better shape than the person that doesn't treat your candidate like a consumer. Yeah, that, that's an amazing point. It's in, There's two things there that really struck me. One is being people first in your processes, your interview process, but also that actually being a common thread or value in your organization. There are some companies out there, and I won't point fingers, who have very people-centric processes. And on day one, it's on. It's a completely different environment. Mm-hmm. So the fact that those two things have to be in agreement is really important. A hundred percent. I also loved about Nike that failing fast was a mission or part of their core values. And a lot of companies say that ability to fall face first and pick yourself up, but they really believed it. There were many projects that I was on that didn't make it to life. Like they still, they never made the light of day, but we tried and we executed and we built things. We built apps, we did cool things and maybe they failed, but nobody saw that as a failure. Whereas other companies I've worked on with or for have like literally dissected everything so much. We, it never sees the light of day. We never get to fail or win. Yeah, it's like this paralysis of, I'm not, I'm doing like chef's kiss here, but it's like (laughs) paralysis. We're so terrified of making a bad decision or screwing up, but you don't ever really challenge yourself or push the boundaries of what it is you can do. Mm -hmm. And I think through failure. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Through failure, you learn, right? And I honestly, like, there was a time where I, I, like, right after Nike or during Nike, where I was on this roadshow, these are all the lessons I've learned, and primarily through failure. Because if you don't try something and fail at it, like, it's rare that you're going to get a lesson out of it. And so having an environment that allows that for that is, I think, was really great. Uh, Now, of course, Nike has its downsides. They get millions and millions of applications. It's hard to break into it, right? Which I think goes back to why the referral program is so important to them. Um, 
And I know that they were building tools and processes to fix that. And I think that's something that most people have, especially in this economy, the plethora or the high rate of applications where people don't feel like they're getting contacted or in a reply. Yeah. Normally in a normal market, Visa, Oracle, Nike, they're going to get more applications than they know what to do with. In a market like this, it just takes that and turbocharges that dynamic. This episode of How We Interview is brought to you by Riembi. You understand the importance of maximizing your team's efficiency. Instead of having your recruiters or coordinators spend time with expense reports to reimburse candidates for interview expenses, automate the process with Riembi. Riembi streamlines the reimbursement process, ensuring your candidates receive their reimbursement quickly and accurately. Your team can focus on other essential aspects of the hiring process by eliminating reimbursement tasks from their workload. Automating reimbursements is a significant improvement to the candidate experience. No more dealing with spreadsheets, attaching receipts to emails, or waiting weeks to receive the payout. With Riembi, the reimbursement payout to your candidates is sent the same day expenses are approved. To learn more about how Riembi can help your team, visit Riembi.com. That's Riembi, R-E-I-M-B-I.com. And looking at your attraction process, your recruiting process, sourcing, everything built in together, can you talk a little bit about how you use data as a means of, this sounds like an interview question, so I apologize. (laughs) Is there a way to use data or how you've used data in the past? Like see red flags and be like, oh, this is broken because we've got this huge drop off here of candidate volume, or maybe we're keeping the B and C level candidates, but the A candidates are showing themselves out of the process. Yeah. So I I always joke that I hate data, but Data definitely is helpful, especially when you have to prove a point or get money. Very few dollars are given to you without some sort of data behind it or or some sort of metric. But my biggest stick right now is demonstrating that attraction works because by top of funnel, you can see the number of applications, right? It's a little difficult to quantify the quality of the application because I think it requires the use of a programmatic tool to see how many apps you're getting and the cost of that, which we're not there. It's part of our journey. We're not quite there yet. But I love to demonstrate that the number of apps we get is XYZ. And it's usually really high. As you said, it's not hard to get applications. But then you start seeing the drop off between recruiter review, interview and offer. So how what is happening in all those stages? I'm not saying I have the answer for you right now. But I love to call it out and say, okay, I hear you. We feel the attraction process is not working. Perhaps I deserve a little bit more information. When you review the applications, what's missing? Or are you getting applications from this source that's just not working for you? Is this something I can turn on or off? And I don't think we're there yet, but that the data is very helpful in me saying, all right, help me understand how we went from 100 to 5. What's the thought process here? And those conversations are conversations we're all having because... I think you're right. What happens in those stages uh, oftentimes don't come to me, right? I always say, oh, pre-apply is my world. But when I have to demonstrate that I'm doing a good job at pre-apply, all those post-apply stages really do matter to my workflow. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't like help me help you, right? Mm -hmm. I need need more data to help you do better. One of my favorite things is you look at all the different channels that inbound candidates come through and somewhere I'll be like, we're converting at a normally higher rate for employer referrals. We were talking about employer referrals. Like, just get me more of those, none of the other stuff. That's not how it works. The typically, yeah. it's I always consider like an applicant file like a recipe, right? Whether it's yeah. like 
And then usually it's something that has a lot of nuance and takes a lot of ingredients, much like talent attraction. Inbound, on the other hand, especially in a market like now, you're, you're probably getting so much organic inbound that you know, it doesn't even belong in the talent traction bucket. If you did nothing, that's still going to be there. I think it's rare when you find a senior leader who truly understands just how nuanced that is and how other downstream impacts, we mentioned in our pre-call, how you're standing up CRM on a website. Like, what will that do to increase the amount of pull-through candidates, right? Because they'll be like, oh my God, this is an amazing experience. And obviously it's, it's unfortunate, but candidates will make assessments about what it's like to work somewhere, depending on how arduous the application process is or how it looks or what's the diverse makeup of the photographs that you have on the site. There's just a lot of judgments that happen as part of that. And why shouldn't they, right? Like when I can go to Amazon and put in black boots and get 10,000 results back, right? Of every shape, size, brand, color available, or I said black shade of, why shouldn't your job search process be the same? And I know that's not sustainable for many companies, especially if you're starting your journey out, but it's the bar. It's the bar that Microsoft put us in. It's the bar that the HPs, all of those brands that have been doing this work for 15 plus years, because employer brand is it new, recruit marketing is it new, we rebranded every few years with a new title. But there's companies that have been doing it for so long, that is the bar. If I go to the Microsoft website, I can get a page about almost every single job family with a little bio of what they do, what projects they work on, some white papers, some blogs. And to be fair, if you go to my career site right now, it's a one flat page with zero information on what our teams do and build. Not saying that we don't do great work, we just don't do a great job of telling that story. Yeah. It, here's our million dollar. No, this is like our $10 million idea. So you and I are both sneakerheads. I know this about you. And mm-hmm. and so if we're if we're buying uh the newest Jordans, and, and let's say you're not on the sneakers app, you're somewhere else, you have a pretty good idea where you're at in the queue. You have a pretty mm-hmm. good idea of who how many other folks are in the queue, and you have a you have a good idea of how how long or your likelihood of actually being able to purchase these shoes that I probably don't need anyways. Why don't we do that with applicants? I, there's a lot of talk about, and now I'm just pontificating, but I'll get to a question here in a sec. Yeah, no. Talk about the impact of AI in recruiting, and it's always on the recruiter side, like bots are going to replace recruiters, which I don't think is the case. What no. I would like to see is AI replacing or adding a layer of transparency to the job search. So if somebody's getting ready to apply for a job and you upload your resume, all eightfold or whatnot, read your resume and says, look, you have a 5% chance of getting this job, and you're fighting with, 600 other people. I think that's a much more transparent experience for a candidate than, great, thank you for application. You get your email at the end and then you never hear from them again. No, I agree. I And honestly, to your AI point, if AI could take away the paperwork to initiate a background check, to process an interview, I still think interview coordinators are very important, but I'm talking about the, the money for their travel. And so for all of those pieces, if those were replaced by an AI component at every process, that would make me very happy. Um, but no, I agree. 
many years ago, and I don't know where Nike landed on this, but they had this amazing project where it was the digital transformation of the entire candidate experience, where they basically hosted a week-long think tank and everybody moved around table by table and talked about cool things. One of them was to add a sort of a tracker so people knew not so much if they were qualified or not, but where they were sitting in the process. So they could literally at a glance, open up a profile page and see it in real time where the application was or whether they were making it or not. I think the reason we don't see those a lot is the legacy ATSs aren't built that way. And you have to buy on a layer and a latch on to do. And there's a great company. I don't know if Punchkick is still around, but Punchkick was helping us design something like that at Nike who would create a third party layer and, and then it would be beautiful and you would have this per career profile for that company. However, as you start working for the visas or you were at Wells Fargo, right? Or you get into these security things where they're like, wait a minute, we've already approved the ATS. Now you want us to approve this third layer. And this third layer, Punchkick would work with another company. So it's really approving like eight companies to run one page. And that's where it starts getting weird. The approval, the risk and all that. And I get it why companies like ours are risk adverse. But at what cost? It comes to the cost of the the candidates, transparency in the candidates process. But it usually boils down to somebody had the great idea and it definitely could happen, but nobody has an ATS that's built that way or nobody turned on all the features when they implemented it. And then turning them back on later is always a hassle. Yeah. And it's so interesting. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, it seems so easy. I apply for a job. You give me the job. There's all this additional context and and really just, it's so complex what it takes to stand up a page or do, even if it's the right thing to do, especially in large matricied organizations, just how challenging it could be, especially when you have technology concerns, risk compliance concerns. If you have access to people's money, it takes on a whole other life of its own. Mm-hmm. I always like to say, or yeah, I heard this here, Visa Network is safe, right? We have your money on it. You just know it's secure. And that's the same level of stringency we do for our HR technology, which as a new employee was extremely frustrating to understand because the same thing I told you about Nike, how it was all about their neighbors and trust and people first. I, I think I stood up clinch. I don't even know if clinch is around anymore, but I think I stood up clinch in three weeks. That's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Clinch is still around, but yeah. Okay. That's like the fastest onboarding. Yeah. I was shook. I was like, because coming from Oracle, we could only use obviously Oracle tools as that makes sense. And even then it was super hard to get, oh God, was it now Eloqua? I think that was their CRM slash marketing tool. I think it's Eloqua. Couldn't even get it on their roadmap because internally, like it was a different process to get on their like recruitment market or their marketing platform. So to come to Nike and literally have that go through so fast, I was shocked, really messed me up because when I got here thinking, okay, no, three weeks was ridiculous, but is it really going to take three years to launch a CRM? And it did. It really did. Yeah, 100%. And you've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. So It is. But so one of Visa's leadership principles is we collaborate, which means you engage all the people to make a decision. And I value that as a collaborative team player, if you will. It's got its pros and cons. It means sometimes it takes three years to launch a tool. Honestly, it should be fair. It took a year from MSA signing. It took a little longer to get the MSA through, but it took a year from MSA signing. Um 
But it also means sometimes it's fantastic because you get to work on these really cool projects you wouldn't have been brought forth because someone is adding you as a collaborative team member. So it has its pros, it has its cons. But I do think as you get into these larger, more matrix organizations, you run into those issues that impact the candidate experience. And not because there aren't great people on the people team that want to do cool things for candidates. It's just the way the process shakes. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, I know we've been talking for a while. I want to be respectful of your time. I, I have uh, one thing I absolutely want to, to ask you before we go. Kind of controlling the volume of candidates coming into your organization. I know DE&I is something that's very important. Yeah, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear you talk about how you ensure that your inbound traffic volume has got always one eye or both eyes on DE&I and how the volume and the diversity of your inbound candidate flow represents the communities you all serve. Okay. And I shared this pre-recording, but in full transparency, Visa's never had a recruitment marketing agency supporting us. And our tool stack has been very limited from a recruitment marketing perspective. And we recently signed on with an agency. So I'm really excited to diversify the avenues and where we publish our jobs and advertise. In current state, because we haven't launched them quite yet, most of our work is in partnership with DEI organizations. I don't manage those partnerships, but I am super close to the team that does. And so we ensure that they have the right content, the right stories, and we're showcasing their jobs at at scale. Of course, we're at all of the normal places like the LinkedIn, the Glassdoor, and the Indeeds of the world. And that's usually, it's because it's powered through a job distribution tool. But to answer your question, why I think having the recruitment marketing agent, I believe having the recruitment marketing agency will really help us because we'll be able to truly see, you know, in a dashboard, what we're spending, where we're spending, whether being able to turn things on or off, and it'll give us access to tools that we just were unable to do one-on-one to get through that MSA process. So we are very cognizant of diversifying our, our candidate pool or our applicant pool across all spectrums, from gender to race to abilities. And that does require a heavy dose of partnership support in current state. But I hope to have a better story to tell you in a couple months when we've turned on our recruitment marketing agency and our programmatic. And you're only one person, right? So I do think knowing... A, I guess the first step is knowing you need some help to get that done and then bringing somebody on board. I mean, it's going to be an amazing story. I, I look forward to seeing how not only you're, you're from a belonging standpoint, but overall brand story evolves with just this new exposure you have and what the agency is going to bring on board and allow you to do. It is so. So our, our fiscal year starts on October 1 and our new fiscal And there's so much that's happening in the next quarter with the career site being rebranded and launched with the agency of record being able to go in and create some content. I told you what before this, we just launched a new EVP in partnership with our employee engagement and comms team. We have some videos. So we have a lot more storytelling opportunities that are coming out as well. So I'm really excited for the first quarter of the year. Sometimes we don't talk about this enough when you're in builder mode and it's all of this excavating and doing all these things before you can put the curtains up and before you can paint the house. And we're still there, sleeves rolled up, putting things together. But once it goes live and all of those pieces together are going to pretty much go live at the same time, I'm really excited. That is just going to be a new chapter in the talent attraction at Visa. 
that's 10 years worth of stuff all happening at one quarter. <laughs> so I, I look forward to, to watching this all roll out as well, because I know what it takes to, to build that stuff. And the fact that you're able to do it and have it all launched at the same time is amazing. I'm super I'm excited. Proud that's awesome. I'm excited. People are probably listening to this and going, Celinda's awesome, because you are. If they want to reach out to you and connect, what's the best way to do that? I'm on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only Celinda Appleby. Super easy to find me. Um, I'm on Twitter, although all I do is talk about my children's shoes and pop culture. So if that's your thing, feel free to follow me. And that that's it, really. That's- I've been pretty quiet lately, though, but I hope to be a little bit more chatty on the social soon. I can always tell when like work's super busy because I'm like, I haven't heard from Slenda in a while. <laughs> so once you get all your stuff lodged, I think Q1, Q2 next year, you're going to be like, all right, so it's shoes and this and that. Yeah, so. I'll be ready. I haven't bought a pair of shoes for myself also, by the way, in a long time. My kids suddenly became sneakerheads in the past year and supporting three sneakerheads is really expensive. <laughs> it is. Yeah. My daughter just got moved into college and, and I didn't, I know it's crazy. I didn't manage like packing. I'm like, pack whatever you want, babe. So we're un- <laughs> unboxing her stuff in her dorm. She's got 30 pairs of sneakers in her dorm room. She's got, you know, Jordan 1s, Jordan 2s, Jordan 3s, Jordan okay. 4s, Jordan 5s. And I'm like, look what I've done. And no wonder I'm so broke because you're mm-hmm. spending on sneakers. Which and you have to literally, so they both, it'll be funny, you know, when sneakers launches something, because now I can't even go after my size. I have to go after their size. So that way we have a monopoly on the size 10 and a half. And they're the same size, hopefully. Yeah, they're like off by like half. So okay. it'll, but usually they're pretty lucky in winning their own, which is great. But it's still three shoes at one time. So anyways, meaning I stopped buying for myself because two is plenty. Yeah, and I did for, I slowed down as well. I just couldn't keep up with my daughter. And she's way too lucky. because It's our fault. Yeah, I can't I, even get upset about it. Yeah, I started it from like day one. I have pictures of them not even walking in Jordans. Like they were in the crib. So absolutely created those monsters. But I love it. It gives us something to talk about and something to bond over. It's just an expensive hobby. It is. It is. <laughs> but I, yeah, it's all always, I'll be like that 85-year-old wearing God knows what then. But, Forever. Yeah. Yeah, you just forever grow it. This is awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I will. I, I think we have more than enough content. Okay, cool. But have okay. a great rest of your week, and thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the How We Interview podcast, brought to you by Rambi. Head to our website at howweinterview.com to find the show notes and links mentioned in this episode. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Leaving us a rating and review also helps us reach more listeners interested in learning from other talent acquisition professionals.